This is Tell Your Story, Alaska. We talk aviation, history, theology, but most of all, the raw stories of Alaskans and the gospel. Welcome everyone back to another episode of Tell Your Story Alaska. Today is going to be a bit of a different episode because instead of interviewing someone or telling uh, a story of an Alaskan, today we are going to tackle a historical question. And it is one that has kind of fascinated me ever since I was a young child and I first heard the story of the Mayflower when they first came over and they encountered some Native Americans. Now, I'm aware that the Mayflower is definitely not the first explorers to come to the Americas. That belongs to the Vikings back in, I think, what it was at the 1000 or 1300s, but also the famous Columbus. Um, But the story that really caught my imagination as a child was the Mayflower. And it just fascinates me that Europeans came over and found this continent and there were people living here. It has always fascinated me. Who are these people? Where do they come from? And what is their story? And I have since been living among Native Americans for quite some time now, nearly a, well, yeah, over a decade now. Uh, Seven years of that was in Mexico, if you want to hear that story. You can listen to our story, part two. I think that was episode 10. And uh, and I've been in Alaska for the last four years. Now, Alaska is especially interesting because the consensus is when Native Americans migrated here, they came over the Bering Strait over an ice land bridge and which connected Asia and the Americas, and so people were able to walk over. So the question we're going to try to answer today is when did the first Native Americans arrive? When did they come here? And also we're going to look into a little bit of where did they come from and why did they come? And so this goes back down to who are they? What is their story? This is, gets into part of Native American, but even specifically Alaskan Native um, identity. Who are they and what is their history? Uh, we can tell their history going back, I don't know, four or five generations. But past that, it just gets really blurry. And so in order to answer this question of more of their origin story, we have to turn to science. And I'm a bit of a science nerd, and so um, I have dove into this question. Now, uh, an episode like this, it really takes quite a bit of time because normally when I interview someone or someone tells me their story or I tell my story, you know, we'll sit down for a little bit, we'll take some notes, and then we just hit record and they tell their story. But for this one, it really involves quite a lot of research. When you're talking about history, it involves a lot of books. It involves a lot of uh, researching online. And, uh, And I watched quite a few lectures as well. And if you go into my show notes, I'm not sure if I captured every source that I referenced in this episode, but I did the best I could to source where I got the information that I did. And so um, I want to dive right in and start with 
uh, when did the first Native Americans arrive? Now, the consensus to answer this question is 15,000 years ago at the end of the last ice age. So I wanted to know, well, how did they come up with this number? How did they come up with 15,000 years? So I did my research. Now, the answer to this question goes back to February of 1929. There was a man named Ridgely Whitman who founded uh, fluted points in association with mammoth bones. Whiteman, I'm sorry, I, th- I think his name is Whiteman. Whiteman uh, tried to show the Smithsonian Institute his findings, um, but that he was largely ignored until the New Mexico Highway Department uncovered huge bones in 1932 at a site known as the Blackwater Draw Site near the town of Clovis, New Mexico. Since then, archaeologists arrived and soon found ancient spearheads, stone tools, and hearths. The site is now considered to be one of the most significant sites in human history. Now, an interesting thing about the bones that they found is uh, they were uh, extinct elephants, bison, wolf, and horses were found. And these animals had what they call impact scars on the bones, which are made when people butcher animals. And, and then they, of course, they found with these, these tools. And so this is a very clear sign of human activity of hunters um, at the time. More than 10,000, they call them Clovis points, have now been found in North America, ranging from Canada to Central America, and they all date to the same time. So that poses a question for me. How do they date these things? Because the methodology of how they date these is key to answering the question of when did the first Native Americans arrive and how did they come up with 15,000 years? So the answer to the method they used to date them is called carbon-14 dating. Now, you can't date rock with carbon-14 dating, and so the spearheads they found, which are made of rock or stone, cannot be dated but they can date things that are found associated with uh, the tools, such as bones. And so, uh, namely, things that used to be alive have something called carbon in them, carbon in them. Uh, and we'll go into some of those details in a little bit. But the dates that they find seem to indicate that these earliest known American sites date to 15,000 years ago, according to carbon dating. Now, another method which we will get to is looking at the genetics of Native Americans. Um, And there is a way to date um, when a population splits from another using DNA. And we're going to talk about that in more detail later. But it's useful for right now to say that geneticists used this 15,000 years ago as a quote-unquote sanity check. In other words, no matter how they interpret the data, if they, they are looking for a migration date of 15,000 years ago in their data as a marker for the accuracy of their observations. And of course, 15,000 years ago is totally reliant on the reliability of carbon dating. Okay, so what I want to do is take a look at carbon dating in some more detail, partially because I'm a bit of a science nerd, but also because it's important to answering the question of when did the first 
Native Americans migrate here. Because carbon dating tells us it's 15,000 years ago. What we want to do is to look at how is does carbon dating work, and we're going to see if it seems to be a reliable uh, data source. Okay, so this is going to get a bit nerdy, but I'm going to try to go through it quickly and as layman as I can. Uh, and I am just a layman myself, but please bear with me. Here we go. This is um, where how carbon-14 dating works. Carbon-14 is formed by cosmic rays hitting our upper atmosphere where nitrogen-14 is abundant. The collision creates carbon-14 atoms. These atoms combine with oxygen atoms and form carbon dioxide. Through photosynthesis, these atoms enter into plants, which animals and humans eat, and we become radioactive with carbon-14. Yes, you are radioactive. Carbon-14 is an unstable element, which means that it will eject electrons and at, and at a measurable rate and turn into a stable element. From this decay, we can determine a decay rate, which is expressed in a half-life. A carbon-14 half-life is 5,730 years, and this has been pretty well established. So I'm going to quote an article by Andrew Snelling, who I think is a geologist, and uh, here's how he describes it in more layman's terms. He says, let's suppose we find a mammoth skull, and we want to determine a date, how long ago it lived. We can measure in the laboratory how many carbon-14 atoms are still in the skull. If we assume that the mammoth originally had the same number of carbon-14 atoms in its bones as living animals do today, estimated at one carbon-14 atom for every trillion carbon-12 atoms, then because we also know the radiocarbon decay rate, we can calculate how long ago the mammoth died. It's really quite that simple. Well, I think in scientific world, that sounded simple to them. But yes, it is. Uh, I have to read that a few times to follow that logic. But um, nonetheless, that is how carbon dating works. If you are able to follow that, if you are not able to follow that, don't worry. Here's how it breaks down. Uh, because the half-life of carbon-14 dating is only 5,730 years, this is not a lot. What that means is carbon dating can only be used to date things that are thousands of years old. And they say a maximum of 60,000 years would be the max date of anything with carbon in it. In other words, if anything is found at all with carbon-14, it must be less than 60,000 years old. Now, here's an interesting fact. Every piece of ancient carbon test has contained some quantities of radiocarbon dating, including coal beds, fossils, and even diamonds. And when I say fossils, that includes dinosaur fossils. Now, this is the popular one with carbon dating uh, because when they carbon date dinosaur fossils, it comes up with answers like 20 to 30,000 years ago. This should not be the case if dinosaurs lived millions of years ago, not to mention that uh, dinosaur remains have been found with, uh, you know, red blood cells, even traces of DNA um, and other things that should not be there if they were that old. And so this puts into question the age of the dinosaurs. But for our topic here is uh, the reliability of 
carbon-14 dating. So there's a few factors to consider with carbon-14 dating. Um, for one, the concentration of carbon-14 varies considerably according to latitude. So this can affect the carbon dates of, say, the Clovis site in New Mexico and the sites found in British Columbia. And this can affect them to a very large degree. And yet, it seems that in all of the literature, they do not consider that at different latitudes, um, there will be greater effects of carbon-14 dating. Um, another factor is we are able to date, using carbon-14, objects of known age. And that we know what ages they are based on other sources like historical records or archaeological records. So when you carbon date things of a known age, it seems like they are accurate back to about 400 BC. So the relative accuracy to the dating method back to about uh, an era in known history, about 400 BC. And after that, it seems to become wildly inaccurate. Now, that's solid observable data. Um, that puts into question carbon dating. Furthermore, the Earth's magnetic field affects carbon dating. When we measure the Earth's magnetic field for the last hundred years or so, we, ca we can tell that it has been in a steady decline in its strength. Now, I don't know how this works exactly, but according to my research, we can even measure what's called fossil magnetism. So if you were to take a piece of ancient pottery, you, we can get out of it uh, a reading of what the magnetic field of the Earth was in the past. And it looks like from that data that the Earth's magnetic field was twice as strong only 1,400 years ago. Now, a stronger magnetic field means smaller carbon-14 levels in the biosphere, which means that we are yielding much older carbon dates than in reality. In other words, because the Earth's magnetic field is declining, this affects the numbers that we get out of carbon-14 dating. Now, it doesn't seem like they take this into consideration when they come up with dates like 15,000 years. Um, but we're going to consider it today. So what does this mean about the date of the migration of the first Americans? The date 15,000 years ago was uh, completely based on carbon dating. So what does this mean? To answer this, we're going to look at some of the assumptions behind carbon dating. One being that uh, the production rate of carbon-14 has always been the same. Number two, it assumes that the atmosphere has had the same carbon-14 in concentration in the past as now. And finally, it assumes the places where organisms live have had the same overall carbon-14 concentration as the atmosphere. Now, as we've already talked about, there's really good reasons to question this. Not just from speculation or from some uh, religious texts, which we will get to, but for good scientific reasons. There's good reasons to question these dates. Okay, now I want to do a little shift. I know that was a lot of like information and data, but I hope the conclusion you get from it is <laughs> there's good reasons to question carbon-14 dating. So let's shift to um, another historical book known as the Bible. Now in the book of Genesis, it describes a worldwide flood known as Noah's Flood. Now, let's assume just for um, the sake of argument that this event described was a real event. 
the effect of a worldwide flood would be the burial of all the carbon in the entire biosphere on Earth in the span of just one year. Now, based on the amount of coal beds, oil, oil shale, and natural gas deposits that we find today, this means that there would have been massive amounts of plants and animals that were alive when the flood struck. This means that the total amount of carbon in the pre-flood world would have been many times greater than the amount of carbon today. So if you consider the amount of desert tundra, open grassland today, and if you consider that that the world pre-flood it was much had more land area, and if you consider that um, the vegetation and animal life would have been much more abundant than today, then uh, these presuppositions are consistent with the dates that we are yielding today with carbon dating. In other words, the biblical story that we are presented with is consistent with the dates that we are finding with carbon dating method. So in addition, here is a prediction we can make with carbon dating. If the biblical narrative is true, uh, then the coal beds that we find today were formed at basically the same time, within a year. And so if that's the case, they should yield the same carbon dates. So scientists said, let's take a look. And so they took samples from uh, coal deposits ranging from the Eocene period to the Pennsylvanian, Pennsylvanian deposits, which ranges by conventional dates 40 million to 320 million years old, and the carbon dates came back to range between 48,000 years and 50,000 years old. In other words, these coal deposits should be millions and millions of years apart uh, in time, but yet they yield the same carbon date, which implies that they were formed at basically the same time. And so the, the, even the fact that they have any carbon in them at all is extremely telling. There should be zero carbon in them. Remember, carbon can only last, or at least in measurable levels, only up to 60,000 years. And we are getting dates like 48,000 to 50,000 years in all of these coal beds, which which are many millions, tens of millions, uh, even hundreds of millions of years apart from each other. So if we put carbon dating into question, what else can we look to? Well, one other thing that scientists are looking to to date the migration of the first Native Americans is genetics. So let's take a look at genetics. When it comes to genetics, I have to be very careful because it gets very technical. And so I do the best I can as a layman to understand it and to explain it uh, in a very simple way. So to quote Albert Einstein, he says, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it enough. So I hope that I understand it enough to explain it to you in a simple way. So to start this, let's look at what scientists have uh found as for dates of the migration of the first Native Americans. And to start with that, I will quote from an article. The link is in the show notes from Scientific American. It says, Geneticists now calculate, based on mutation rates in human DNA, that the ancestors of the Native Americans parted from their kin in their East Asian homeland sometime between 25,000 and 15,000 years ago. So that's our date, and this is based on taking uh, genetics from an ancient Native American bones, 
and genetics from ancient Siberian remains, and you compare the two, and you consider mutation rates, and you come up with this date. So we're going to dive into some of that, hopefully in an understandable way. Um, and all of this, of course, is the goal of answering a historical question, even though it's getting sciency. So here we go. Let's start by looking at mitochondrial DNA. This is a section of your DNA that you inherited from your mother. All mothers pass on mitochondrial DNA to their children, which means you have a copy of your mother's mitochondrial DNA, except for perhaps some differences in the form of mutations. These generational mutations can create a genetic clock based on measured mutation rates from generation to generation. Now I'm going to quote from an article by Ann Gibbons. The link is in the notes. Um, what she says about when what happened when she took the measured mutation rate in mitochondrial DNA. Let's see what she says. Quote, regardless of the cause, evolutionists are most concerned about the effect of a faster mutation rate. For example, researchers have calculated that mitochondrial Eve the woman whose mtDNA was ancestral to all, to that and all living people lived 100,000 to 200,000 years ago in Africa. Using the new clock, she would be a mere 6,000 years old. Okay, let's take a minute and break down what she is saying here. She is saying that according to an evolutionary time scale regarding the history of uh, humanity, of the human species, we should expect a mutation rate that's consistent with 100,000 to 200,000 years of human history. So, in other words, they should be finding a slow mitochondrial mutation rate. But what they found is a very fast mitochondrial uh, mutation rate. And using that measured rate, that means a mitochondrial Eve, or the mother of all human beings, lived 6,000 years ago. Now, from my research, I found that mitochondrial uh, DNA only offers us a fuzzy history, or you could think of it like a camera. It's out of focus. You can't see it clearly, which means that the number 6,000 can be fudged one way or the other, but certainly cannot be fudged up to 100,000 to 200,000 years. However, you if you dive into the research, you will see that they add filters to the mutation rate in order to get the results they're looking for, which I must say is not great science. Now, we talked about before that um, they use carbon dating as a sanity check to make sure that uh, their genetic mutation rates are matching with what they find in the, the, the timing of their genetic research. Um, and so, in other words, they will add filters to match the carbon dating results that they get. And we're going to discuss this more um, in a little bit. But I, I want to I want to point out something here that's interesting. It's already very shocking that all scientists agree that there seems to be a mother of all humanity, which they call mitochondrial Eve. This gives credence to the idea of the biblical Eve as described in the Bible. Even though they, they would disagree on the dates, they, all scientists seem to agree that there was one mother of all humanity. Now, that's kind of amazing in of itself. Um, however, even more amazing, in the mitochondrial uh, DNA, they find three families of mitochondrial DNA 
uh, that appear in the human race. Now, this is very interestingly consistent with the story of Noah's and his three sons, which came off the ark. Those three sons each had unique, uh, each had wives, each with their own unique mitochondrial DNA set, which they passed to their children. So, in other words, having three families of mitochondrial DNA in humanity is consistent with the biblical narrative. Okay, now, so here's another fascinating thought about this. The Bible offers us a history that is limited in its scientific possibilities for explanatory power. I'll say that one more time. The Bible offers us a history that is limited in its scientific possibilities of explanatory power. Okay, if you reject the Bible's history, then you can accept pretty much any conceivable theory uh, to explain the data. This puts a massive disadvantage to the Bible because it has a narrative that it's putting forth, which puts an extreme limit on its explanatory power. So I hope, I hope that makes sense. It's hard to explain in a clear way. However, the more we learn in the area of genetics, the more we find it is consistent with biblical history. It's really an incredible thing that what we are finding in modern science is consistent with the biblical story, and that didn't have to be the case. There did not have to be a mitochondrial Eve, and yet there she is. They still debate about the dates of it, but um, um, everyone agrees that there was one, and that's just an amazing uh, fact. Okay, now since mitochondrial DNA is described as high statistical noise, and that's because there's only like the way they term it. There's only one tick of the clock every five to 10 generations. This makes tracing the history. So if you're trying to like put timestamps in the data, it's very difficult to be accurate. It's fuzzy. So the nature of the mutations doesn't allow us much clarity in making historical conclusions. So for more historical clarity, we can turn to a different type of DNA called uh, y chromosome DNA. Y chromosome is uh, only in males. You maybe remember from high school biology that uh, females are XX chromosomes and males are XY chromosomes, and only male have the Y chromosome. Now, the Y chromosome, this section of the male DNA, is really a great place to look because it offers us um, an in focus view of genetic history. Um, it's focused because the Y chromosome is consistent throughout all males, but it, except for mutations. Now, if you take the Y chromosome sequence from men around the world, which they have done, you can compare the mutations that they share and then the ones that they don't share and create a family tree of humanity. Now, scientists have categorized these families as letters. For example, my right Y chromosome is in haplogroup I, which, by the way, is believed to be the Vikings, which is awesome that I'm probably a Viking. Uh, Native Americans are overwhelmingly haplo haplogroup Q, and there's a lower number of Native Americans who are in haplogroup C. Now, this is overwhelmingly the case among Native Americans. Um, now, there's a several things we can learn from this data of the Y chromosome family tree of humanity. One is we can learn of the, an, I'm going to call it an echo in the data of a population split. So, for example, when 
uh, people migrate from Asia over to the Americas, you have a group of people that are being isolated from another. This, there can be an echo of this in the genetic data so you can see it. Okay, number two, you can put an approximate date of that split. You do that through mutation rates and you can put dates on the family tree. Number three thing you can learn is you can learn an approximation of the population and, um, of, a, of a certain group of people and you can see population booms or population declines. Okay, now the method of obtaining this is pretty technical, far above my pay grade, but needless to say, these are things that they can learn from this genetic data. Now, if you measure the mutation rate or the number of mutations per generation, you can put timestamps on this family tree. And therefore, you can estimate a date of when a population split off from another. So you can see where this is going. From this, you can estimate when people from Asia began to become isolated from people in the Americas, and you can put a date on it. And this is very relevant to our question. When did the Native Americans migrate here? But before we get to that, what is that mutation rate? Well, they've done some measurements, and it's approximately three per generation. Three per generation. And so now we have a mutation rate. And if you take, uh, if you uh, apply a generation, say 20 or 25 years per generation for when a mother has a child, then you can come up with some dates. Okay. Now, early measurements, uh, this is just a side note, but early measurements of the Y chromosome mutation rate was consistent with evolutionary views. In other words, it seemed like to be a very low rate. However, this was from low quality data, but since then we have gotten very high quality data and the number we get is three. Now here's a quote from an article and uh, there's a link in the show notes. And this is from an evolutionary biologist. He says, the number of SS differences was approximately tenfold higher than the expected number of de novo mutations considering the range of published chromosome Y mute mutation rates. This finding prompted us to explore additional filters. Now I'm going to try to translate that quote. This quote means that the measured mutation rate did not match their expectations, so they added filters until it added what they were expecting to find. In other words, they literally messed with the data until it fit what they were looking for. However, if you take the measured mutation rate and apply it to the data, you come up with a Y chromosome atom around 4,500 years ago. Now, this is kind of an amazing thing. Using the measured mutation rate, not adding all kinds of filters because it didn't match what they were looking for, which is so not scientific. It's unbelievable that they did that. But if you take the measured mutation rate, what you get is a Y chromosome atom around 4,500 years ago. Now, consider the biblical narrative. You have Adam and Eve... But then you also later have Noah and his family. All of humanity is wiped out. And it, the, all this comes down to all of us coming from one man named Noah. And then he had three sons. And Genesis 9.19 says, These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So the Bible presents us with a narrative that we all come from Noah's three sons, which means Noah is our Y chromosome, quote-unquote, Adam, 
which is interesting. The data did not have to show this, but it did. That's what it's showing us, that we have a mitochondrial atom who came from the time of Noah. How ironic. Okay, so if you apply this data from a biblical time scale, you can test it. What we want to test for is to see if there are echoes in this genetic data of known history using the Y chromosome data. For example, we know that the American slave trade happened, when it happened, and about how many people came over and where they came from. So this event of the American slave trade, as evil as it was, um, should show an echo in the Y chromosome data, and it does. Another example is the population collapse of the Native Americans after the arrival of Europeans due to disease and war. Does, does this population collapse uh, show up in the data? It absolutely does. Now, with other known historical events, it has consistently shown an echo where we would expect it. But this only works when you apply the biblical time scale to the data then all of these historical events are showing their echoes in the data. It's truly incredible. Now, here's another example with the strength of this model. If you take the population data throughout known history, based on historical records and archaeology, and etc., and you compare it with the Y chromosome data, with the biblical timescale lens, you get a match of 94%. However, if you take that same Y chromosome data and apply it through an evolutionary time scale, you get a 14% match in accuracy. In other words, applying a biblical time scale to the Y chromosome data, you get a massive amount of, of match regarding to historical populations. That's really an amazing test to the strength and veracity of applying the, the data this way. Uh, this is really interesting too. Um, there seems to be a very strong cohesion with the Y chromosome data and the Table of Nations from Genesis chapter 10. Now, the Table of Nations is a list of peoples that went out from the Tower of Babel. And the Y chromosome data dates back to that time. Um, so if you compare the story of the Tower of Babel and the Table of Nations, there's um, quite a bit of cohesion now, interestingly, many of the names in Genesis 10 are also where ancient civilizations get their names, which we find in archaeology. For example, Mizraim is the Hebrew name for Egypt. Cush is the ancient name for Ethiopia. Canaan became the Canaanites. Mesesh, I don't know if I pronounced that right, is the ancient name for Moscow, although that's debated. Uh, Gomer is connected to Galatia and other places. Magog is connected to Romania, Ukraine, the Goths, and the Irish. Elam is the father of the Persians. Eber gave rise to the Hebrews. And of course, there's many, many other very interesting connections like this. So the question is, what could this tell us about unknown historical events? Because if the Y chromosome can point us and it shows echoes of known historical events in a consistent manner, what can this tell us about unknown historical events, such as when the Native Americans arrived here in America? Okay. So we're going to take a look, that, a look at that. For starters, um, I mentioned before that Native Americans are, in, in very large numbers, the majority are in haplogroup Q. This is a family group in the Y chromosome data. 
with haplogroup Q. They share an ancestry with another group, other groups uh, such as R1A, R1B, R1, and R2, and these groups are linked to Europeans going back as far as the 1300s to 700s BC. In other words, um, if this is the case, Native Americans and Europeans share an ancestry going back between the 1300s, 700s BC. That's so interesting. Um, the other haplogroup um, that Native Americans have in much lower numbers is haplogroup C, which may have originated in Africa, but later in Siberia. So there's an interesting African connection. So then that leads us to the ultimate question that we're trying to answer. According to the Y chromosome data, when did the Native Americans arrive? Well, according to the data, haplogroup Q arrived between 300 and 600 AD, and haplogroup C arrived around 1000 AD. Now, the question we will need to answer is, were they the first Native Americans? Or not. But first, let's consider some known historical events taking place between 3 and 600 AD for haplogroup Q. And let's see if we can connect uh, known historical events then that would have prompted them to migrate to the Americas. There is a dynasty called the Han Dynasty, which was at its heights during that time. And at that time, there was some incredible warring conflicts with Rome. Now, from these conflicts, a group of people... Uh, called by historians, a great wandering of peoples began to migrate away. Now, this does seem like to be like a historical event that could prompt people to leave an area and migrate all the way to the Americas, mainly because there's a connection between the historical known data that we have and the dates that we're getting from the Y chromosome. So it seems like a good connection that we can make for why the modern Native Americans that we know and love today originally migrated to the Americas. Could have been from wars of the Han people. Now, what about haplogroup C? They migrated from Asia around 1000 AD. Now, at that time, there seems to have been, according to the same data, a huge uh, migration of of haplogroup C from Asia into Europe. So we can see that pretty clearly around that same time, migrations from Asia into Europe, but why not also some people going the opposite direction into the Americas? So that's a possible connection in the within the data itself of where haplogroup C came from, which is a minority in the Americas, but still there. So now we must ask, were these people the first Americans in the Americas, or were there people there before them? Now, one of the issues is we do not have the genetic data from all Native Americans. We only have them from a very limited number of them. So there's an incredible amount of missing data. For example, the Olmecs archaeologically date back to about 1500 BC, who seem to be one of the first Native American civilizations archaeologically. We also don't seem to have data from the Mayan people. And so this requires more research in obtaining more genetic data from Native Americans to see if we can withdraw more data so we can learn more about their history. This is sort of the mystery because it does seem like the modern American Native Americans that live today are in haplogroups Q and C, but it appears that they were not the first Americans, mainly because 
the dates that we're getting for their migration are younger than the, than other civilizations that we know date back from before then. Now we can confirm that from some oral histories from the Native Americans themselves that when they arrived here, they encountered people that were already here. Now, what I want to do is take a look at some of those oral histories from the Native Americans themselves. These are absolutely fascinating because they really um, affirm what the Y chromosome data is saying, and it, it confirms that the modern-day Native Americans were probably not the actual first Native Americans, but they migrated here and found people already here, which is just an amazing kind of shocking revelation, if you will. It's uh, really fascinated me. Okay, the first oral history from Native Americans themselves come from a book called The Red Record. This comes from the Delaware Indians, obviously from uh, the state of Delaware. Now, this book records the history of their own people and describes a migration to Akumen, which is America, and they migrated across an icy landscape and they came to a land of evergreens. Now, as they went along, they encountered people already here. Now, in that same record, they recorded 95 sachems, which are like their chiefs or their leaders. Um, they had 95 sachems since their arrival. And if you do some calculating, um, based on estimates of the ages of the reigns of these sachems, they arrived sometime between 200 and 900 AD, uh, kind of depending on how you count. So now this is consistent with the Y chromosome data of people coming across sometime between 300 and 680. So we see here some consistency. Now, if you ever get a chance to read the Red Record, I have a copy myself. Um, it also describes in their own history this great worldwide flood cataclysm that wiped out all of humanity. And it's just incredible when you read it. Um, skeptics would say, no, they have this because of um, the influence of missionaries and stuff that got mixed into their own mythologies. And, and those are all legitimate criticisms. However, this is their own history from their own perspective. And it's interesting that that data matches with this Y chromosome data, uh, which I suppose you could accuse them of knowing the data ahead of time somehow. But anyway, it's amazing. The, uh, the, the history that they give for themselves is consistent with the Y chromosome data filtered through a biblical timescale. Okay, um, second source is about the Incas. This source is an interesting one. It's from um, a PDF document a friend of mine sent me from a Spanish priest named Pedro Sarmiento de Gamboa. He recorded this in 1572. Now, keep in mind, the Spanish conquistadors originally overtook the Incas in, 15, in the 1530s, I think. I don't remember the exactly. So this was recorded in 1572. Um, he, this priest was commissioned to record the history of the Incan royal line in order to prove that they were not legitimate natives of the land. They wanted to prove that they were ty tyrannical by taking over the people that were there before. He dates the beginning of the Incas in 595 AD while naming every ruler in succession up to 1533 when the rule ended, um, giving their civilization a lifespan of 968 years. He records that the tribes all lived in simple liberty without recognizing any lord. It all began with four brothers and four sisters, the leader of which was named Manco Sipak. 
They claimed to be sons of Veracocha, which is their creator god, and they tyrannized the people and began a royal line. Now, it's very interesting. If you take this royal line, they actually have the lengths of each of their reigns, and they have stories of each of these kings. Um, When you date that back, what you get is an origin of their civilization in 595 AD. This is also consistent with the narrative that Native Americans migrated here between 300 and 600 AD and started civilizations and encountered people already here. All right, now the last source I got is about the Aztecs. This comes from something called a Codex Chima... Oh man, it's hard to pronounce. Chima Popoca. Now, this is a document... um, Uh, made by the Spanish. Now, when the the Aztecs were overthrown in 1521 by Cortes, the Spanish burned and destroyed as much of their history as they could. The idea was to remove their pagan ancient religion and replace it with Christianity, which is a truly unfortunate action. However, some work um, had been done to recover this history by the Spanish with some native help. Now, according to this document, the Codex Chimal Popoca, um, which is a history of the Aztecs, um, and it's the same thing. It's a it's a, a list of their kings or leaders, and they have their the links of their reigns, and they are able to apply dates to this. And what it comes to is their history reaches back to 635 A.D., also consistent with the Y chromosome data of people migrating here between 300 and 600 Um, AD. So these are three um, accounts of Native American history, largely from from Native Americans themselves that confirm the Y chromosome data. So some conclusions. The shocking discovery is that modern Native Americans have been here less than 1,500 years, not 15,000 years, and yet we are still left with the puzzle of the people they encountered when they arrived. Who were the Olmecs and what about the Mayans? Where are there others? Can we find a genetic data from them and what will it say? The mystery is still waiting to be solved. Now for Alaska natives who still proudly identify as Yupiks, Athabascans, Eskimos, and others, you are likely a part of Hapal Group Q who arrived 300 to 600 AD. Now, research like this is bringing light to your history, your story, and as it turns out, your history and my history, as possibly a Viking, is uh, all rooted in scripture, and we are not as distantly related as you might think. So we still have those answers, those questions that we want answers to, and we still need quite a bit more research. If you are interested in everything that we talked about today, um, make sure you checked out some of the sources that are in the show notes, but most especially um, check out the research of Dr. Nathaniel Jensen. On his research, I relied very heavily, and um, make sure you check out his book called Traced, and he also has a um, quite a lot of lectures on YouTube that you can follow, and uh, I highly encourage you to check that out. I also consider Nathaniel a friend. He and I talk on the phone and have spent time together. So thank you all for listening today. I hope you found this interesting and encouraging as far as the, you know, rooting the identity of modern Native Americans, how there's a strong connection in biblical history. 
So thank you all for listening, and we will catch you next time, perhaps on another nerdy episode really soon regarding Alaskan history. If you have a story that you would like told, please contact me at tysalaska at gmail.com, tysalaska at gmail.com.